Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. There's a lot to see in our national parks and historic sites, including some pretty interesting things underwater. This is Lynn Riddick filling in for Kurt Repenshek, your host at National Parks Traveler. This week, we take a look at the Submerged Resources Center, the arm of the Park Service that locates underwater resources, whether sunken ships or planes, old ranches or train tracks, coral reefs or kelp forests, then documents and interprets them, always with an eye toward their preservation. And with three and a half million acres of Park Service land underwater, it's an immense yet intriguing responsibility. Also, this week the tables were turned and the traveler's Kurt Repenshek was a guest on a podcast, the Reliable Sources podcast with CNN's Brian Stelter. Reliable Sources is all about the story behind the story of how the news gets made. Brian and Kurt discuss challenges of covering the news in the national parks, why the traveler's coverage is unique, and also more important now than ever. You can catch the interview on all podcast formats. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, Foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the national park system for decades to come. You can see their successes at gtnpf.org. Western National Parks Association is a nonprofit education partner of the National Park Service. WNPA supports parks across the West, developing products, services, and programs that enhance the visitor experience, understanding, and appreciation of national parks. Learn more at WNPA.org. The North Cascades Institute has a large portfolio. It's an environmental learning center, training center, conference center, and leadership center, all set in the splendor of the North Cascades National Park Complex. Learn more at ncascades.org. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It's also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people, inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. Today we're going to take a deep dive into some deep dives and some shallow ones too. With me is Dr. Dave Conlon, archeologist and chief of the Submerged Resources Center of the National Park Service, checking in from the center's headquarters in Lakewood, Colorado. Hi Dave, welcome to The Traveler. Thanks for having me, Lynn. It's great to, uh, to spend some time with you and uh, talk about what we're doing for the national parks. Well, who knew the Park Service had a submerged resources center? It's pretty interesting. I immediately thought of the USS Arizona and Pearl Harbor as, you know, a very well-known underwater resource. So mm -hmm. tell us about 
the center and how the Park Service formally started using diving as a tool to interpret and manage underwater resources. Well, it's interesting, you know, when people think about national parks, they think about Yellowstone, they think about Yosemite, they think about Grand Canyon, they think about Everglades. But the truth of the matter is, is that, you know, of our 400 plus units in the national park system, over half of them have water in them. And in that water, um, there's all sorts of amazing things to see, to protect, to experience. And so, you know, while people think about uh, redwoods and, um, you know, bighorn sheep, we also have kelp forests, we have sea lions, we have shipwrecks, we have aircraft underwater. Uh, We have a tremendous amount of stuff. In fact, the National Park Service manages more coastline than, than the entire country of Brazil. We manage about five and a half million acres of submerged land all over the country and throughout the Pacific into the Caribbean and just some absolutely remarkable places where you can go and see things underwater, including Yellowstone. Well, I have a lot of questions I want to ask about specific parks like Yellowstone, specific dives and the work you have done and the work you are doing. But first, tell me, what types of disciplines are part of the center and who makes up a team? Well, our center staff is nine people altogether. So of that, we have two photographers, one uh, dive operations specialist. We have a um, dive safety officer, a national dive safety officer. And we have um, our most important person, obviously, our administrative support. uh, And then the remainder is made up of archaeologists. So we are the Submerged Resources Center. But really, I would say, until relatively recently, we really focused on cultural resources. So that's, you know, shipwrecks, airplane wrecks, terrestrial sites that are now underwater due to reservoir construction or due to changing sea levels, those sorts of things. So, yeah, we're a very small team. And then when we work in parks, we do everything that we can to uh, work with the dive teams that are in national parks as well. So, Of our 400-plus national parks, about 35 of them have active working dive teams. And diving has been part of the National Park Service's toolkit since the 1950s. Well, talk a little bit about that um, in more detail. Because was there a point when the Park Service shifted from recovering victims of drowning to uh, using diving as a tool to, you know, to manage or to become more aware of all these underwater resources? Well, the the first Park Service ranger that was ever officially authorized to dive um, as part of his duties was a law enforcement ranger named Jack Moorhead. And you're exactly right. Early diving in the national parks really focused on recovering property or people who had drowned in national parks. But, you know, the mandate of the National Park Service doesn't end at the waterline. And over the years, people have begun to appreciate that. And now we have about 200 scuba divers in the National Park Service, 200. It it kind of waxes and wanes. And a lot of those are kind of collateral duty. So they don't do it full time, but they do it as, as part of their duties. They might be a law enforcement officer for most of the time, but then also work on, you know, search and recovery missions 
in a lake or, or offshore. But we have a, a number of marine biologists. We have uh, coastal ecologists. We have all sorts of, of scientists that uh, spend the majority of their time working for the Park Service engaged in diving and focused on underwater resources, both natural and cultural. That's really fascinating. And, you know, specifically, I was curious about what kind of things does your team do, the, the teams in the Submerged Resources Center? You know, in a nutshell, what we do is we find things underwater, we document those things, and then we interpret that. And so that sort of simple three-step template uh, can get refined and reused, and it might be an underwater crime scene. It might be a shipwreck. It might be a coral reef. It might be a kelp forest. Um, and our audience might be, uh, you know, law enforcement. Our audience might be a park resource manager who's interested in, you know, what's going on in their lakes or rivers. It might be a park superintendent who is putting in a new war for a jetty or a power line or a transmission line is getting put in at the park and, and they need to make sure that it's not impacting any sort of historical resources. We have a really diverse range of projects. We have a diverse range of people that we're doing the projects for uh, and you know, no two are ever exactly alike. Yeah, I was kind of curious about what kind of reports that you would find yourself putting together. But like you said, it really depends on who the information is uh, requested by. Exactly. So right now, I mean, earlier today, I was working on a report for Lake Mead National Recreation Area. In 1948, a B-29 superfortress that was in, engaged in uh, top secret high altitude research out of China Lake crashed into Lake Mead. And um, we worked with the park years ago to open that up as a site that was accessible for visitors to the park so that they could, uh, with a guide, could go down and dive on the B-29. And this past week, we just replaced the mooring infrastructure there. It was getting old and, and falling apart. And so we, we put in uh, new lines, new anchors for the boats to, to tie off to um, and a way to more safely access the site. So for that particular project, you know, the park is not interested in a long report about the history of the B-29 or, or other research, what's happening to it in terms of preservation or anything. So I've got pictures of big concrete blocks and pieces of chain and buoys sitting in Lake Mead, and that's all getting put together in a very short, concise management report that I can share with the park. And so now they know what's there. And also with that, I'll include our best estimates of the lifespan of the different components of the mooring system. So that's just one thing that I'm I'm working on. Other people on the team are working on some sonar for launch ramp expansion at Lake Mead. We're working on uh, change some moorings at San Francisco Maritime Museum for some of the historic ships that are there. Uh, one of our team is working on a historic report for the battleship Texas as part of the National Historic Landmark study for that. We have a team down in Dry Tortugas National Park. They just left today and they're using some of our 
underwater photographic equipment to document healthy sections of coral reef in the face of potential impacts from coral disease, which is slowly migrating southward down the Florida Keys and unfortunately looks like it may end up hitting dry tortugas at some point in the not too distant future. So we're doing what we can to help the park document and preserve what it's got right now. There are three and a half million acres located underwater within the national park system. The coverage area is huge and I'm guessing only a fraction of these waters have been dived and inventoried by the park service. So how do you set priorities? Where do the priorities come from? Who sets them? Our priorities are park priorities, and so we, um, our priorities are always resources at risk. So that means if there's a shipwreck that someone has found and they're taking things off of it, or if it's a, um, you know, there's been a hurricane and and a shipwreck that was buried is now uncovered, um, and it's likely to decay or or you know, be impacted negatively from from either natural actions or human actions or a combination of of those two things, that's our priority. You know, we take the Park Service mandate to preserve our natural and cultural resources unimpaired for future generations very, very seriously. And so that's those are the things that we do, you, you know, right away. The other things that we do, we we have a whole sort of way of prioritizing our support for parks and and that's really at the top of it and then it goes to um, things that will generate capacity in national parks so that the parks themselves will learn how to take care of some of their own submerged or semi-submerged resources we have a priority for projects that span both natural and cultural resources together so that could be you know a coral reef that's protecting a a historic shipwreck or a historic shipwreck that is a habitat for a threatened or endangered species or something like that. So we, we do that as well. And then way, way down at the bottom of the list, where we almost never get to is projects that we think are really exceptional and um, are really worth bringing to the attention of the American public. Other than the sheer size of submerged lands of the National Park Service. What are some of the other unique challenges of managing these, you know, these major resources? Well, I think one of the challenges, and it's getting better, is the sort of out of sight, out of mind. You know, when you go to a place like Yellowstone National Park, and there are bears and moose and elk and wolves and all sorts of cool things to see. And then you tell someone, well, you know, there's scuba diving here as well. And in Yellowstone Lake, there are submerged thermal spires and thermal features. There are actually hot springs that come out in the bottom of the lake. You know, I think that that people say, well, that's great, but those things aren't visited by a lot of people. And so our concern is, pavement and roads and visitor safety and all of those sorts of things. And, and that, as I said, I think it's getting better now. And, and superintendents are willing to consider that there are classes of objects that are in their national parks that are unique and they're underwater and they deserve some examination and some protection. And the problem, of course, is none of our parks ever have enough 
money, time, or people to take care of everything. And so the the very most difficult job for superintendents is setting priorities. And so, you know, we rarely, if ever, tell superintendents what they have to do. Um, we only ever offer them up advice and options. And we try to do our work for our superintendents as quickly, completely, and cheaply as we possibly can. Now, you said the center makes recommendations to parks and partners that are in line with the preservation mandate of the Park Service. You mentioned the Lake Mead projects. What other kinds of recommendations have you made that we might have heard about or benefited from? Well, we make a lot of recommendations to not do things. And so, you know, in that case, like what happens is nothing. (laughs) So we, we... um, a, a really the very best case in point is USS Arizona that we just briefly mentioned earlier. But USS Arizona is leaking bunker C fuel oil into Pearl Harbor at the rate of about four quarts per day, give or take, depending on weather and other things. And so the estimate is, is that USS Arizona, which was fully fueled on December 6, 1941, before it was blown up and sunk by the Japanese on December 7th, is, is that it had a little over 1.2 million gallons of bunker sea fuel oil. And bunker sea fuel oil is really heavy, sticky. It's sort of got the consistency of molasses oil. And so after Arizona blew up and burned for four days, the estimate now is that there's something about about 600,000 gallons of bunker C fuel oil still on board the ship. And so when visitors come to the park and they see oil that floats to the surface and breaks and, and casts a sheen on the waters of the harbor, the first thing they say is, well, why don't you pump it out? And that's an absolutely reasonable question. Why don't we pump it out? Well, we've done years of studies, studying the corrosion, studying the physical strength of the the remaining ship, studying where the fuel is contained in the ship, studying the uh, degree of corrosion that's happening both on the outside and on the inside, you know, beneath the mud line in the harbor, all of those things. And what our studies have told us is that the ship is expected to retain significant structural integrity for the next 150 years, perhaps the next 250 years. And so, you know, when people say, oh my gosh, there's, there's oil leaking out, we should do something, we should, we should pump it out. The only way to pump it out is to drill into that structure. And drilling into that structure would compromise its physical integrity, but it would also compromise its historic integrity. That site is a war grave for 1,177 sailors and Marines who died on that ship on December 7th, 1941. And so every couple of years, what happens is is that the the Navy owns the ship, the Park Service manages it, and there is turnover among the command at uh, Joint Base Pearl Harbor, and a new admiral comes along, and, and he or she says, oh my goodness, there's oil leaking out of that ship. We need to do something about it. And you know, they contact the engineers and the engineers say, oh, yeah, you know, we can do that. We'll we'll drill a hole here and we'll, we'll you know, dig in here and we'll do this and we'll do that. And, and then they eventually get to us and we just say, 
you can't do that without destroying this this war grave and you there really is no reason to do that because here is all the scientific studies that we have done here is all the science that's telling us that this site yes it's leaking four quarts of oil a day but it is in no danger of having some sort of catastrophic collapse that's going to release thousands of gallons of oil and in the context of an active navy base four quarts of oil is is minimal it's very very visible because what happens is is when that sea fuel oil hits the surface of the harbor it spreads out into a, a a very very thin film that's kind of rainbow hue and and if you took a tablespoon of bunker sea fuel oil and dumped it into an olympic swimming pool that film would cover the entire pool so a very very small amount of oil creates a very large visible visual impact and so people are concerned that you know Arizona is polluting the the waters of Hawaii and and it is in some sense but really it's not in another so so to kind of get back to your original question those sorts of advice that we give to our superintendents to our resource managers oftentimes is um, you, you know don't do that let's try something different or let's just leave it or let's find a way to preserve it um, unimpaired that doesn't require a lot of effort, that doesn't require a lot of energy and that doesn't require a lot of money. What other reports or activities have you done uh, in which you said, don't do anything, leave it as it is? Can you think of anything? Well, I mean, you know, the B-29 at Lake Mead, that was another case where we actually, um, some local divers found it. And they... How, they, how long they, ago uh, was that, uh, Dave? In 2000, gosh, 2003, I believe. I'd have to check my notes. Anyway, they, they found it and uh, they were using a side scan sonar, which is a kind of instrument that, that you know, it's looks at the bottom and you're not allowed to use the side scan sonar in a national park without a permit, but they were doing that. And then when they found it, they started diving on it. They removed a bunch of materials off the, the, the aircraft. And then they, they felt like because they had found it, they should be able to keep it. These were just and, recreational divers or did you yeah, see divers? No, these were recreational divers. And so, you know, local divers and, their contention was, well, we found it, we get to keep it. And we in the National Park Service said, well, you found it by using a side scan sonar in a national park without a permit, which you're not allowed to do. Why is that? And it, it, because it's that's exactly what they're for, is to find shipwrecks. And, and we want to preserve anonymity of these archaeological sites. And that's one of the best ways to protect them. And we said it's a government plane in a national park, so we don't think that you should be able to have it. And what they wanted to do is that the aircraft is tremendously valuable for parts. Um, there aren't very many B-29s left, and there's only two flying examples currently. So all the parts and pieces would have been worth millions of dollars. And so they wanted to to pick it up and haul it away and, and either restore it was what they said, but more likely that, you know, would have gotten chopped up and, and used for other things. And so 
again, that was, you know, what we did was keep the status quo and, and keep something drastic from happening. Um, we work with national parks to help protect their shipwrecks, you know, at, at Biscayne National Park, at Dry Tortugas National Park, at Gulf Islands and elsewhere. And, you know, it's really interesting that visitors to our national parks, like you wouldn't go to the Lincoln Memorial with a hammer and chisel and, and you know, chisel off a piece of Lincoln's foot to take it home with you as a souvenir. But our, you know, I think it's something about being underwater. People find something underwater. They think, oh, well, I should be able to have that. I should be able to bring it home with me. And, and I know that, that visitor impacts to archaeological sites and historic structures above land, or, I mean, above water, in, in national parks is a, is a perennial issue, but it's, it's more so of an issue underwater. And I think that's just because we all grew up with stories of pirate treasure and gold and cannons and, and all that sort of stuff underwater. And so people think like, Hey, we should, we should get this. We should, we should bring it home with us. We should keep it as a souvenir of our, our trip to a national park. And so we try really hard both to work with local constituencies to to get divers who are local to the area um, to buy into the idea that these sites should stay where they are and they should be undisturbed. And, and then also trying to, you know, get the word out that this is another part of preservation is just taking only pictures and, and leaving only bubbles. And, you know, we we've been fairly successful. And then, you know, on occasion, we work with law enforcement. If someone decides to to go down and do something really egregious and, you know, tears apart a shipwreck and, and decides to sell parts of it on eBay or something like that, then, then we work with law enforcement to, to investigate the crime, to attach a value to the damage that was done and to help hopefully prevent that from happening again. Let's talk a little bit more about the Lake Mead National Recreation Area where you have been working, your team has been working. And besides the B-29, talk a little bit about the underwater gravel factory that was built during the construction of the Hoover Dam and what that project's all about. What do you see down there? How deep are we talking? Well, right now, I mean, the, so the lake, uh, lake level is at about uh, 1,089 feet. And so um, the the aggregate sorting and washing facility currently is about 90 feet deep, about 85 to 90 feet deep. And the facility, what it was, was it was a huge six-acre industrial plant. And what it did was it washed and sorted gravel and sand and, and larger cobbles. And so... Uh, what happens is is that when you mix aggregate, which is the generic name for sand, gravel, and cobbles, uh, with concrete, you get cement. And so there are different recipes that have varying mixtures of different size aggregates that, that gets put together. And, and that, when, when mixed with cement, creates concrete that has different structural properties. And so in building the, the Hoover Dam, the engineers, what they would do is they would order train loads of the, the recipes for, for the concrete came in train loads. And so they'd say, we want 
you know, three train cars of small pea gravel and we want four train cars of sand and we want, you know, six train cars of three inch cobbles. And then they would mix all of that together in a giant mixer at this place called the batching plant. They'd mix that with cement and they would make concrete and then they would pour that. And so the engineers knew that by varying the recipe, they could make concrete with that that worked for areas of high stress, for areas of low stress, for areas that was people would see. So it needed to have a smooth finish and look nice, uh, all of those sorts of things. And so the gravel plant, the, the aggregate plant, operated pretty much continuously during the period of construction for the Hoover Dam. And so it, it was something that that people knew about. And when we first started diving on it, it was obviously much deeper because the lake was deeper. When we first started diving on it, it was about 160 feet deep. Now it's 90 feet deep. Hmm. So, um, but it's a, it's a huge undertaking. And so what we've done, which is, this is really something that I'm quite proud of is, is the park has encouraged us to work with volunteers, specifically veterans who come to the park a couple of times a year. And because this area is six acres, it's, it's far too big for us to, to document and map just with our small team. And so we get a, a team of volunteers come out and work with us a couple weeks a year, drawing and mapping um, the aggregate sorting and washing facility. And once the, the mapping and documentation work is done, what we will do is we will turn that over to the park and the park intends to open that as a recreational diving site. It's a really neat project. And the veterans, uh, you know, what happens. Yeah. Talk about that. Talk about the veterans. That's the waves program, correct? That's correct. Yeah. So the waves stands for wounded American veterans experience scuba. What waves is, is a a group uh, that started in Southern California and what they have found is, is that the, the experience of scuba diving is tremendously therapeutic for veterans who have both physical and um, psychological disabilities as a result of their service. And so we have vets that have, you know, have been shot, have been wounded, have been blown up in, in IED attacks while serving overseas. And, and what they find is, is that being weightless underwater helps with nerve pain. It helps with back pain. It helps with all sorts of aches and pains. But then the other thing, which is really very, very interesting is, is that the, our vets who are experienced psychological trauma as a result of their service, a lot of PTS stuff, their symptoms uh, abate for a significant period of time after scuba diving. And nobody really knows why, whether it's due to the fact that uh, you're weightless underwater, whether it's due to the fact that you have less sort of sensory input or, or what. But, but the point is, is that these vets experience a tremendous amount of healing while they're working underwater. And, and so the waves program started in Southern California. And the idea was, is getting vets out and getting them diving. But what happened is, is veterans being veterans, you know, you can only swim around and look at things for so long. And eventually they said, you know, we want a job. We want to do something. We want a mission. We want to focus. We want a purpose. 
And we said, we can help you with that. And this partnership was formed. And so now we're in our fifth year, I believe, and it's been tremendously successful. It's great for the veterans. It's great for our national parks. It's it's great for our resources. And it's going to be great for our visitors, too, when we start rolling out products like a map of the aggregate plant. And hats off to Lake Mead, who who really saw this for what it was. And, you know, we they had a superintendent and a management team that said, we really want this to happen. We can see the value in this, and we're willing to to work with Waves and work with the Submerged Resources Center to to make this happen. But but from that those initial projects, we've we've sort of expanded it. Now we've done projects on USS Arizona and in Hawaii, which is you can imagine is tremendously important to to our military, both as a sort of emotional and historical touchstone. We've worked down in Dry Tortugas. Um, we're working at Biscayne National Park this summer with uh, women-only vets. So we, now we have uh, we sort of diversified a little bit. And we have a, a program that has an all-women team. I'm Lynn Riddick, and I'll have more with Dr. Dave Conlon after we take a short break. Listener and reader support make National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year. If you enjoy the Traveler's content, please consider a donation via nationalparkstraveler.org. Whether it be strategy, business planning, change management, or development, executive search, or diversity planning, Potrero Group is here to help. They mix a depth of experience in the parks and land space with a breadth of best practices from other industries. For more information or to schedule a preliminary conversation, go to potrerogroup.com. P-O-T-R-E-R-O group.com. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to raise private support to deepen everyone's love for understanding of and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. Interior Federal Credit Union is the newest sponsor of the National Parks Traveler. It is the official credit union for the Department of the Interior, which includes the National Park Service. This month, the credit union is celebrating 86 years in business. It was first started by Department of Interior employees and eventually opened its membership to like-minded groups. Its ultimate goal is to be your natural resource for financial services. Not a Department of Interior employee? Not a problem. Visit interiorfcu.org to find other ways to join. Federally insured by NCUA. I'm back with Dr. Dave Conlon, archaeologist and chief of the National Park Service's Submerged Resources Center. Isle Royale National Park in Michigan is another notable place when it comes to submerged resources. 
So in addition to the land, I understand the park is comprised of 685 square miles of surrounding waters. So what's under those waters in Lake Superior? What kind of work have you done there? Well, Lake Superior is is absolutely a treasure because the very cold, fresh water preserves everything very, very well. The Kamloops, SS Kamloops, was a lake freighter that sank um, in 1927 just off the north shore of, of Isle Royal, and it still has cardboard boxes full of shoes in it. It still has Lifesaver candy in its rolls still on board. The, the preservation is absolutely spectacular. And, and like a lot of national parks, um, you know, these resources are under threat by invasive species. Now, zebra mussels and quagga mussels are slowly beginning to colonize the shipwrecks of the Great Lakes. But so far, they've been slow to colonize the shipwrecks at Isle Royal National Park. And so they, they are absolutely spectacular. The diving there is very challenging. It's very cold. Uh, you know, in the springtime, it'll be 34, 35, 36 degrees. But the water can be very, very clear, and there is amazing things to see. The, the shipwrecks are, you feel like you could just kind of bring them to the surface and, and dust them off, and they, they could work just as fine as they ever did. It's an amazing place, and, and the, the shipwrecks that are there are an amazing part of that, that park's history. Has your center done uh, any kind of mapping for that? Um, uh-huh. Yes, we, we did. In fact, before my time as chief, um, the first chief of the Submerged Resources Center, Dan Lenahan, one of the, the first large-scale projects that they did was a comprehensive survey and documentation of the major shipwrecks at Isle Royal National Park. And it was the first sort of work in underwater archaeology that looked at a group of shipwrecks as related instead of just individual shipwrecks as unique events. So really a milestone for the Submerged Resources Center and and something that really pushed diving in the National Park Service in new directions, made it face some very difficult technical challenges about cold water and deep diving and overcame those successfully and produced absolutely spectacular documentation of these sites. Channel Islands. What's going on there? What have you done in that um, park? Well, Channel Island um, is is sort of an interesting situation um, because the park owns the water column. Well, they they're responsible for the water column, but the ocean floor actually belongs to the state of California. So, by law, what that means is is that the shipwrecks don't belong to the National Park Service. They belong to the state of California. So we um, we monitor those sites. We visit them on a regular basis. And that's part of our uh, mandate is to kind of ensure their, their preservation and protection. There's been a fair amount of documentation of those sites as well. The thing that I think is really exciting that's beginning to happen at Channel Islands is, is that the the traditional idea about how the Americas were settled by people coming across the Bering Land Bridge and then waiting until 
you know, the glaciers melted in walking through the ice-free corridor in sort of north northwest central Canada is kind of under attack. And what people are starting to think now is, is that instead of a, a terrestrial movement of people from Asia through Alaska and down into North and South America, they probably came by boat. And so one of the places that's really exciting for looking for and, and hopefully finding evidence of early human settlement in the new world is at Channel Islands National Park. Some of those sites are probably underwater due to sea level rise, and some of them are probably above water. So the, the park archaeologist is a very, very talented, you know, prehistoric archaeologist, and she's been working with local universities and, and um, partners at NOAA, partners at BOEM, and with a little bit of support from us. And, you know, we're hopeful that at some point in time, we will find a, a site that is, you know, older than 12,000 years old, that's older than 14,000 years old, that might be 15, 16,000 years old. And that would really change what we're thinking about how the new world came to be settled initially. Pretty huge stuff. Yeah, really exciting. Really, really exciting. I want to go back to the Biscayne National Park, and I understand you have done or are doing some remote sensing for shipwrecks involved in the Atlantic slave trade. Uh, Tell me a little bit about that, and are your women vets part of that program? The the women vets are actually, they're going to be doing sort of coral restoration and marine debris removal, so they won't be part of the... the, um, Atlantic slave trade uh, project. But one of the things that's really great about the National Park Service, really exciting about the National Park Service is, is once we start talking about ourselves, we just never kind of quit. And and we have both a national and an international reputation. And, and we get a lot of requests for international technical assistance. The Submerged Resources Center gets requests for international technical assistance. And and we are fortunate that the National Park Service, part of our mission is to not only do what we do, but to share it internationally. We have a we have a great office of international affairs that helps sort of make connections and contacts. And and so years ago, I was sitting talking to a, a friend of mine that I went to grad school with and another friend of mine who was from South Africa, and we were talking about shipwrecks and things that we could do. And, and, you know, it just sort of hit us that in the, in the 300 years that, that slavery was an institution in North and South America, about 12 million people were kidnapped and, and stolen from Africa and brought to the new world to, to work, to, to, to work in enslavement, and they all came on ships. And, you know, a lot of that history is not very well known, and it's not very well documented. And so from those sort of initial musings and conversations, we we, we started a project called the Slave Rex Project. And, and over the years, it has gathered steam and gathered more expertise and become more professionalized. And now we are um, that part, the Slave Rex Project, is now housed 
at the Smithsonian National Museum for African American History and Culture. They are sort of the the institutional core, but but it started with a couple of guys sort of sitting around talking about, hey, what could we do? And and you know the the shameful history of slavery and enslavement is in you know on the terrestrial side is is pretty hidden you know structures that were involved in in the the sale or uh maintaining people in human bondage were uh, repurposed were destroyed were were erased from from history but if you look at a shipwreck when a ship sinks everything stops it's like a snapshot in time it's a time capsule and so it's 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 everything that that was going on on that ship is there to see to to study to tell its story and we really felt like the 12 million people who were stolen and brought to the new world they they lost their voices and we felt like the slave rex project feels like it can be a role of archaeology to help bring those stories back into memory to to give those people a voice and to to tell their stories based on materials that we find um, on shipwrecks. And so uh, there is a ship called Guerrero, which was a, a pirate slave ship. So what the pirate slave ship Guerrero would do was it would actually attack other ships carrying uh, enslaved people. And and take the 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 enslaved people off of them, and then sell them elsewhere. Uh, and Guerrero was being chased by uh, a British warship HMS Nimble, and Guerrero wrecked and sank somewhere around Biscayne National Park. And so, for the last sixteen years, we've been working with uh, an organization called Diving with a Purpose, which is it started as part of the National Association of Black Scuba Divers, African Americans um, primarily, but but um, not exclusively. Uh, and very interested in not just diving like our veterans, you know, but actually having a, a mission, a purpose, and a focus. And so we have been on the hunt for Guerrero for a very long time. It's a very big area of the park. We have done a lot of work and we still have a lot of work left to do. But the idea is, is that this could be a project that would help tell the story of enslavement in the Americas. And it's an opportunity for people of uh, African-American heritage to really be directly involved in the search for and, and the the documentation and, and the telling of history, which is intensely per, uh, personal to them, so it, it's a great partnership. The Park Service is only one of many partners. As I said, you know, the Smithsonian National Museum of African American History is its institutional home, but the Smithsonian is sort of the the hub around which a lot of projects rotate, and and the Park Service has been a founding member in the Slave Rex Project, and we are a strong source of technical support and expertise for things like diving and underwater photography and all the things that we do every day as part of our job. And, um, you know, this really sort of 
wonderful consortium of like-minded individuals and institutions is all kind of banded together to to bring forth this very difficult um, and very painful history and and really get people thinking about it and it and it's it's more relevant now it seems like than ever I want to go back to Yellowstone for a minute now. Um, the park superintendent, Cam Shawley, told the travelers, Kurt Repenshek, recently that there have been encouraging results in the years-long effort to eradicate the invasive lake trout and repopulate the native cutthroat species in Lake Yellowstone. Tell us about the work the center does or did that contributed to that effort. As I said earlier, what we do is we find things underwater, we document them, and then we we interpret those findings. And one of the questions that the fisheries biologists had at Yellowstone was how could they best focus their eradication efforts um, in a way that would, you know, get rid of the invasive trout species, but yet preserve the native trout species. And and so as it turns out that the invasive lake trout preferentially breed and and lay their eggs on a certain kind of of lake bottom that that the other trout do not. And so the park really wanted to know where are those areas located because that is where they could be most effective in, in laying nets and, and, you know, trying to capture these trout species and, and get rid of them. And so, you know, we did some diving. We did some work with a remotely operated vehicle, which is sort of a robot submarine. We did a, a, some work with our side scan sonar. And we helped the park to, to sort of say, okay, this area over here looks good. This area over here doesn't look good. And also, you know, for all the work that they did, the park used to have a dive team, but no longer has a dive team. And so, you know, they really wanted to know, okay, we can see what we're doing on the surface, but we don't really know what, what it looks like underwater. And so it was really a unique and cool project to work with the fisheries biology folks there at the park to, to sort of say, okay, this is what the bottom looks like. You know, this is when you say this is, like show us a picture of what is the very best habitat for lake trout spawning and we'll try and find that for you. And so we we were able to help them with that. I think we had a, a, a relatively small part to play in the the large, large effort on, you know, on the part of the park to to eradicate these invasive species. And they've they've really put their heart and soul into it. And it's that's news to me. It's it's wonderful to hear that that all of these efforts over the years are are beginning to to pan out. And so, um, you know, hats off to to the folks at Yellowstone that have have really used applied science and and a lot of energy and effort to try and and restore that habitat. It's a it's a great success story. Dave, I want to talk about experience and safety now. Uh, you mentioned it a little bit in the beginning, but what kind of experience and dive specializations do uh, center divers have to have? Well, we put a tremendous amount of effort into training our divers, into giving them the tools to to make um, good decisions underwater, to have the expertise to 
do what they're doing. I mean, you know, you're not just diving, you're actually working, you're collecting scientific information. And so you need to be comfortable and you need to be safe. You can't take valid scientific observations about shipwrecks or or anything else underwater if your mask is half full and you're, you know, you're you're trying not to drown yourself. And so, you know, we have a lot of training. We do a lot of time in the water. We do, you know, a lot of additional, um, it's not just, you don't just get a, a one sort of certification for diving. All of our staff are tremendously well-trained and, and we continue to train. It's a, the organization, that part of, of our job is really, it's lifetime learning. So every year we take a week or a week and a half and sort of go out as a team and work not only on the things that are involved in diving, but also in team dynamics and how decisions get made and how risk is assessed, how risk is managed, how risk is approached, all of those sorts of things. I mean, we look to the other parts of the National Park Service that do similar things like wildland fire, like law enforcement, like our special uh, event teams, all of that sort of training, that sort of approach to to the environment that you're working in is something that we we do as well. And we're, we're very serious about it. underwater archaeology is not particularly macho. I don't ever want people to think that it is, but it is an environment that can kill you. And you need to be aware of what's going on. Your your first job is always to to be safe for yourself, for your teammates, and for your family. But in addition to that, you're there for a reason. And so we want our divers to be trained to the point where they can both dive safely, but also do their jobs effectively. Yeah, I did want to ask you about that because, you know, most of us have deadlines with the work we do. But with divers, your deadlines are firm because there's always the pressing limits to the amount of time that you can remain underwater. So managing the underwater time has got to be one of your biggest challenges. Um, How extensive is your minute-by-minute dive plan above the water? And then is there room for winging it once you get below the surface? Well, it it depends on what we're doing. You know, if we're diving in 10 feet of warm, clear water at Dry Tortugas National Park, I think there's lots of room for winging it. <laughs> you know, you can jump in the water and, and <laughs> swim around and, and come to the surface and talk about it with your buddy. And um, But if you're making a dive to, you know, 200 plus feet on yeah, at Isle Royale National Park, you need a plan. And, and you need to have a really good idea of what you're going to do and who's going to do it. And you also need a really good idea of, you know, under what conditions you're willing to do it and under what conditions you're not willing to do it. You know, I mean, we have been extremely fortunate in the National Park Service. You know, we have not had a diving fatality in the 50-odd years of operational diving. We tragically had a a fatality during a a physical fitness test a couple of years ago. And, but other than that, we have been remarkably safe and, and that's not something that we take for granted. That's something that we work at every single day. Every project that we have has an extensive amount of paperwork and where is our medical facilities, where is a backup medical facilities, if an accident 
you know, God forbid actually happens. What's everyone going to do? How are they going to do it? Do we have the equipment that we need? Does everyone know what the plan is? All of those things are part of our, our operations. You know, I mean, it's it's really quite quasi-military, to be honest. You know, it's mission planning, contingency planning, asset acquisition and management, um, all of those sorts of things, and a continual assessment over the both before the project starts and during the project about how conditions have changed, how that's going to impact what we're proposing to do, um, all of that sort of stuff. Tell me about that surreal kind of perhaps eerie feeling of something, of seeing something so out of place, a huge ship or a plane rusting away at the bottom of the ocean or lake. You know, I think the vignette that I've shared with people over the years is the first dive that I ever made on the on the B twenty nine. Because at the time we were we first started diving on the lake had so much water in it that the site was it was almost two hundred feet deep. It was very dark and and quite scary to be honest to make a dive that deep to you know to be working on that. And this was relatively early in my my career as a you know, more advanced divers. So these dives started taking place in 2006, I believe. And one of the things that that happened, which was really pretty remarkable, was that Brett Seymour, who's the deputy chief of the Submerged Resources Center and a very, very talented photographer, had some connections with Hollywood and, and through Hollywood got some underwater filmmaking lights and which we hung over the top of the B-29. And and as we went down, the lights were off, and then we got to the bottom of the lake, and suddenly someone flipped on a switch, and there was this absolutely massive silver airplane sitting there underneath these underwater floodlights. And it was just one of the most remarkable experiences of my my career to just go from pitch black to this big, shiny silver airplane sitting underwater at, at almost 200 feet. And it was just, it was amazing. It was it was really amazing. And I think that, you know, as an archaeologist and I think other archaeologists, other people out there who who who, you know, dig for things and find things, you know, that 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 thrill of of seeing a shape appear, whether you're digging in the dirt or using a, a suction dredge to remove sand and mud underwater or just coming around a corner of of, of a reef and, and seeing a shape and suddenly looking at it again and realizing it's a cannon or it's a, it's a part of a ship is, you know, that sort of jolt of satisfaction of curiosity rewarded is, is really one of the things that I think makes archeology span so, so special. And, and, and that happens, you know, we get to go out, we get to find things underwater that people, other people have never found before. And and to come across the shipwreck that that no one has ever seen, and and to realize that you know the last person who was on this ship was on it 200 years ago, and all of a sudden here you are, sort of you know making a connection across the centuries is is really uh, really a remarkable feeling, and and I think that again that that kind of goes back to that preservation mandate of the Park Service, which is like we do this so that other people can have that same experience, so that they can experience those things as well, so that they can come around that same corner and see that same thing and, and, and see what it is and, and, and get that same sort of jolt of their 
their curiosity rewarded. So, you know, it's, it's one of the least tangible and most rewarding benefits of the job that I do. Dave, I want to thank you for your time today. This has been a fascinating conversation, just a very interesting topic. And we will look forward to hearing more about your center and upcoming dives. Yes, well, thank you very much for having me. I, I, I get passionate about what I do and I tend to go on. So for, for the listeners out there that have, that have gotten this far with us, um, thank you for your patience. Thank you for, for, for sticking with us. And, and the only thing better than talking about diving in national parks is actually diving in national parks. So I do encourage everyone to put on a mask, fins and snorkel at the very least, and go out and, and have a look and see what, what is in a national park underwater, because it will blow your mind, I guarantee you. We hope you enjoyed this underwater journey through some of the submerged treasures of the national parks. I'll be back next week to tell you about my recent Yosemite trip with a friend, the three hikes we took, and the interesting people we met along the trails. And to help you prepare for your next adventures and to support National Parks Traveler's work, we're currently offering either a signature traveler water bottle, a tumbler, or a ball cap to let others know you're a parks traveler. Click on the Donate button on Traveler's menu bar to choose your gear. For The Traveler, this is Lynn Riddick. See you in the parks. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Parks Travelers podcast. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. Editing and production work for the National Parks Traveler podcast is done by Splitbeard Productions. You can learn more about us at splitbeardproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.